Well, welcome. Uh, we are still camped out in the book of Judges. So we started this series a while back. Uh, we're looking at all the different cycles of the Judges, and uh, it has been fascinating to study. And so we saw what the dark side of idolatry and leadership looks like last week, uh, what it can look like at least, as we saw Gideon become entitled and driven by this overwhelming desire to be honored and respected and revered. So Gideon chapter 7, as opposed to Gideon chapter 8, we see two different Gideons. And, uh, and so we looked into that last week. And unfortunately, we see Gideon's story end with, with him dying, and we don't see any repentance before that moment. We don't see him come to the realization that, uh, that he was wrong. We don't see him come to the realization that, that he, uh, he had walked away from his God. And like Dusty alluded to, we see other leaders like David hit these low points, but we see them repent of it. We see them basically pray that prayer, restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. We hear David say that. The sad reality about Gideon is we don't ever see that moment. Now, it would be dangerous for me to stand up here and say it definitely didn't happen because we don't have record of that either. What we, don't, we just don't have record of Gideon repenting of his choices at the tail end of his life before he dies. And it's sad. But the reality is it doesn't get a whole lot better for Gideon's family from this point moving forward. So we're in uh, Judges chapter 8, if you want to turn there. If you're using the Bible that's in the pocket in front of you, it's on page 142. We're going to look at the tail end of, verse, uh, of chapter 8, and we're going to go through chapter 10, verse, around verse 6. We're not going to read all of that today just because it's a whole lot. Actually, chapter 9 is a, is a very long chapter with a whole lot of history in it. Uh, so we're just going to go through and look at some different parts to highlight it. But I'd encourage you to take the time this week to, from start to finish, read from uh, verse 31 of chapter 8 through verse 6 of chapter 10 and, and get all of that contextually together. If you've never read through the book of Judges, I'd encourage you to do that. Have a good commentary by your side and, uh, and have some people help you walk through uh, what that means. You know, I used to read the Bible sometimes. Well, I, I read it more than sometimes. That's a poorly, poorly phrased statement. Sometimes I read the Bible. Uh, but uh, there were times whenever I would read the Bible and I, I'd kind of feel hopeless. I'd feel like the passage didn't offer me much hope. I knew that God offered me hope, but there were passages throughout Scripture, especially Old Testament things, that I would read and I would just, I would feel kind of hopeless. It would be like, what, what is the redeeming quality of this? There were times I'd walk away and I'd think, I don't have any idea, the, what is the point that I have this in front of me? Why do I need to know this? Why do I need to know about the tail end of Gideon's life? Why is that so vitally important? I remember asking questions like that. And you know what turned the tide for me? The gospel. Understanding the message and the life of Jesus. Understanding who he is, what he came to do, and how he did it. 
Understanding that he is the pivotal main character in all the pages of God's story, which is the Bible. That everything points to him. Everything is, is pointing to him. So when we see brokenness in the word of God, the only reason we know it's brokenness is because we have Jesus to compare it to. And I, I must have understood that intellectually at some level because I knew I was reading something that was broken, but I didn't make the connection between why it was broken and why I was realizing that. And that main piece is what helps us connect the truths of the Word of God to our own hearts that leads to transformation because we feel this, like, this feeling of grossness in our own hearts. And then in that, we feel the kindness of God, which leads us to repentance. And the reason I say that is because what we're going to look at today is not an uplifting passage. I'm preparing three weddings this year, and I'm just telling you up front, some of those couples are in this room right now. I am not using these passages in your wedding ceremony. I'm not going to use the one from before where, where the woman jammed the guy's head into the ground with a tent stake, right? There's just passages in the judges that you're just like, that is so graphic, that is so crazy. But the only reason that it's there, in my opinion, is to allow us to see that once we know the perfectness of Jesus, we have that as the ultimate thing to look at. And anything that doesn't meet that standard is broken, and we fall under that too. So all of these stories, even though there's some crazy, ugly things that happen in, these, in the pages of Judges, we should all be able to see ourselves in these stories, in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not physically. Maybe we're not doing the kind of ugly deeds that these men and women did. But in our hearts, we are abandoning our Creator, just like God's chosen people did, all through the story of Judges. So before we get any further, I just want to re revisit. We did this last week. I just want to read the last part of Judges chapter 8. So you can get an idea of, of the setting. We're going to set the stage here for what we're going to look at today. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, I'm st I started at verse 29, I'm sorry. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, listen to that, let that sink in. As soon as Gideon died, the people turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, I want, you to, I want you to pause there, and I want you to see what's happening. Gideon dies, and even though he dies, sort of a train wreck in the leadership spectrum, he was better than what's about to happen. And the author wants us to see that because he's saying that Gideon, even though he was kind of a train wreck, still was used by God to bring peace and harmony of some level to God's people. And the people, as soon as he drew his last breath, were like, let's find a new God. 
The only piece that was pointing them back to Jesus was Gideon, and it was fragile at best, if you read before Gideon dies. It's a fragile connection between God and his promises and his, and his commands and who he is and how Gideon is practically leading God's people. It is a fine, thin thread, but it's still a connection. And when he draws his last breath, as soon as he died, it's like everyone was like, okay, he's dead. And then they just went and did their own thing. It's like they, there's almost an anticipation amongst God's people for him to die because they, they, the only connection they had back to the promises of God, the commands of God, were through this person, Gideon. So Gideon, in the midst of making all of his bad decisions in leadership, leads him to have multiple wives, leads him to have a concubine in a neighboring city, and he has way too many kids at this moment. But one of those sons' name is Abimelech. We said it last week. I'll say it again. There's this moment where at the, at around verse 22 in chapter 8 where the people of Israel, uh, have, have, they've seen victory. They've seen uh, that, that Gideon has led them into victory. And they say, hey, we want you to be our king. And he, he looks at them and he says, I am not your king the Lord is your king. And from that point until the day he dies, he functions as their king. He had a, a verbal recognition of who God is, and he never assumed the title officially. He just lived like he was the king. And at the tail end of his life, we see a son be born of this concubine in a neighboring city whose name is Abimelech, which translates from the Hebrew Abimelech. And that word means, my father is king. That's the name Gideon gave to his son to the concubine in a neighboring city. The man who said that I am not the king, the Lord is your king, named his son, my, son, my father is king. And this person is where we pick up the story. So Abimelech is this guy, as the story unfolds, who will at any cost amass as much for himself as he possibly can. Figuratively, meaning respect and honor and fear, and physically. Now, the geography is important here. We see this all start in this, in this place called Shechem. If you're, a, if you're a theologian, which I am not, but if you're, if you're deeply ingrained in Scripture, that word Shechem, that place, that geographical location on the map, might hold some kind of significance to you. If it doesn't, it probably will after today. It's a very important location. Now, before I tell you why, let me give you a little word picture. If you were to travel just a few hours uh, west of here, you'd get to a little town called Gettysburg. If you've never been there, please go. Gettysburg is a very sacred place, right? Not sacred in the religious realm, but sacred in that the Amer American history that happened on those grounds. You had men on either side of opposing issues fighting each other in the same country for different reasons, brother against brother, and that all came to a cataclysmic point in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The men divided amongst themselves, they give their lives there. And there's so much historical significance wrapped up in that location and, and several like it all over the country. 
whether it's uh, a historical place or a place where a tragedy happened. There are places like Montgomery, Alabama that hold so much history about the race movement, about equal rights. Well, Shechem is kind of like that kind of place. In the Israelite journey, Shechem is very important to them. It's where God appeared to Abraham and he told him that this land that you're looking at, this land that you're in, this is the land I'm going to give you and all of your descendants. This is the place, Shechem, at the base of the two mountains where Abraham, for the first time, dedicates this land by building an altar to the Lord right there and dedicates the land to God because he had promised it to him and all of his descendants. In Joshua chapter 8, we see the people cross over into this promised land. It's, the, it's this spiritual center. It's a thermometer for the Israelites. So what happens in chapter 9 in Shechem in the history of Judges would be like us going back to Montgomery, Alabama or Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and instituting slavery again. It would be like going to those sacred places on our land and instituting the very vile thing that men died to get rid of and to eradicate. It has so much historical and geographical significance. And the Israelites, this shows, have lost it. They have lost their ability to understand what God has delivered them from completely. And it would be like us doing the same thing in our land. Now, if I hope that sounds crazy to you. I hope the thought of going to Gettysburg and fighting another war to get slavery legal again is such a vile and horrible thought to you, because it should be. But I say that because I think we all need to understand how far God's chosen people have drifted from Him in this moment, have drifted from the reality of who they are, who they were created to be, and the promises that God made. So, every other leader in the book of Judges was called by God and didn't seek out the role. Every other one that we've seen so far has not sought out this this role of being the leader. Abimelech, though, sees an opportunity and he grabs it for himself. He essentially looks at the people and he says this, wouldn't it be better to have just one ruler? And wouldn't it be easier and better if we could just ensure that that guy was one of us? And wouldn't it be awesome if that guy was me? And the people, well, look at how they respond. Chapter 9, verse 3, he essentially says what I just said. And, and chapter 9, verse 3 starts off, And his mother's relatives, he's speaking to all of his relatives in Shechem, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And then they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house, basically the bank, which, hired, which Abimelech used to hire worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Think about that. That's, that's the summation of his first leadership move. He says, uh, you know what, guys? We should have just one ruler, and we should know who the guy is, and it should be me. And they say, you know what? You're right. He's one of us. Let's make him our king. 
Matter of fact, let's give him a big bunch of money. Go do as you like, Abimelech. All right, I'm going to hire 70 of the worst people possible. That's his first official act. Now, follow along with me here. After he hires them, end of verse 4, end of verse 5, and he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Bithmilo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. He hired goons. They went into Gideon in, in the, the name uh, uh, Jeribel. That's Gideon, by the way. They go into the town of Ophrah, where Gideon was from, where the rest of his family lived, and they murder all of Abimelech's siblings. That's his first official act as the new self-appointed king. He hires 70 goons, goes back to his hometown, and he kills his whole family. Why? I would say he's probably a very insecure leader because he's waiting for one of them to spring up and take his position. Now, there's a pretty good leadership lesson here in all of this. We can way too many times be impressed with the wrong things, and because of that, sometimes we put the wrong people in the wrong spots. God doesn't look at whether someone's an extrovert. He doesn't look to see whether someone is popular. He doesn't look to see how well-educated they are. He doesn't want to know how funny they are. He doesn't know how, how successful they are. That's not what God cares about. Listen to what Tim Keller says on this topic. He says, God seeks men who hold to his truth, seek to lead their family rightly, are patient and self-controlled. He does not want well-mannered, well-dressed, 21st century equivalents of Abimelech, chosen for the wrong reasons and chosen for the wrong qualifications. Character matters. And in this moment, God did not choose this leader. The people chose this leader. And they had enough religious thoughts to say, no, 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 this is, this is uh, yeah, yeah, Abimelech, you're the right guy. You're, you're from here. You're one of us. Now, like I said, remember, the name Abimelech means my father is king. A name given to him by the man who said he didn't want to be king because it was the Lord's position. It was reserved exclusively for God to be king. So no, I will not be king. And then he named his son, my father is king. The only son of Gideon that escapes this whole thing is one of the youngest, and his name is Jotham. Jotham's name means God is perfect. So here we see a battle from about chapter, from chapter 9, verse 8, through about chapter 14, I mean, verse 14, I'm sorry. We see this, this battle ensue where, where Jotham is trying to convince the people what they've done. And through that verse 14, he, he's giving them this poetic picture of trees and crops. You should read it. So Jotham gives, gives these, uh, this, this poetic speech 
to the people. And essentially what he says, to summarize it, around verse 16 of chapter 9, he, he summarizes it by saying, essentially, if you've been fair to Gideon's family in putting Abimelech in the position of king, and let's face it, you haven't, but if you have, then may you find great blessings and success under the rule of King Abimelech. But if you have not... And let's face it, you have not. Then I hope you and he get what you all deserve. You burned by him and he burned by you. Jotham is the only one standing up and opposing this. And I find it, I find it awesome that their meanings of their names. You have one guy whose name means my father is king. And you have another one whose name means God is perfect. God is perfect. Now, we've already seen that the people in Shechem tend to look for the wrong things in leaders, and they, they can be fickle. So listen to what happens next. We're going to pick up the story around verse 26 of chapter 9. Follow along with me because we're going to read a decent chunk of this. Kids are playing with the lights. All right. That's, by the way. I know that wasn't designed by someone who did church work because they put the light switch to the sanctuary in the room where the kids are. Churches are notorious for putting light switches in the wrong places, but that one was God's providence to make sure this was going to be a church someday. So follow along with me. We're going to read a decent chunk of this because I think it's important to digest all this. Okay, We're going to start at verse 26 of chapter 9. Listen, this is the, this is the, the sort of the downfall of Abimelech, starting at verse 26. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Let's just stop there. We know they're fickle people. We know they follow the wrong things of leadership. Now we see a new guy come in. His name is Gaul. He's the son of Ebed. And the Shechem people put their confidence in him. Verse 27, and they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. So his reign is quickly coming to an end, right? 28, and Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? But that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you will do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who are with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. Verse 35. And Gaul the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him, rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. 
Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, who said, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. Verse 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and he killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zelman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed, me, killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. That is a pretty gruesome end to a very prideful leader. I read that because I think there's a pretty good chance that if you're anything like me, outside of today, you won't. And I think it's important to understand what is building up here, what is happening here. Abimelech is running into these cities and these villages to take out as many people as possible because he's got this vengeful streak in him and he needs it fueled. He needs to get his kingdom back. We see his pride hit a final downfall when he's stacking the bundles against this tower and a woman throws the upper part of a millstone on him, which would be a piece of granite probably or limestone about this big, solid, about that thick. How it didn't kill him, I don't know, but it crushed his skull. And he was with it enough to say, I want you to run me through to the guy who was carrying his armor because I don't want people to say I got killed by a woman. But the ironic twist of events is it's exactly what we know about him. He got killed by a woman. I wish we knew this woman's name. It says, a certain woman. So here's Abimelech's life. That's his legacy. Terror, killing, vengeance, hurt, pain, complete disobedience to God. And when he died, what did the people do? They scattered. They scattered because that's what people do who don't respect their leader when their leader steps out. 
When people love a person more than they love God, when the person is gone, the people go too. And when God is the king, he's on the throne like he's supposed to be. It doesn't matter who's up front. It matters who's in here. And it matters who you're devoted to. If we're devoted to God, we stay devoted to God. If we're devoted to men, we are fickle, just like the Israelites. And when Abimelech, who wasn't even good, it wasn't even a good leader, he was just fearful. He was a fear monger. And he had the nasty reputation to back it up. But when he died, the people scattered. They went back to their homes. So in between chapter 8, verse 34, and chapter 10, verse 6 of the book of Judges, God is not mentioned one time by his personal covenantal name, the Lord. And this is a picture of a ruler and a society that wanted to push God out of the picture entirely. They didn't want to worship him. They didn't want to consider him. It's a dark telling. Listen to the first part of chapter 10, though. Starting at verse 1 in in chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shimar in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. And the list goes on and on. After Abimelech, a leader named Tola comes to the surface, rises to the surface, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him, another leader, another judge, rose to the surface and served them for 22 years. That's completely God's grace, right? That he would provide them someone who could judge them and give them rule and reign for that long of a time. The people have completely abandoned him. They've they've decided to be led by a man who so very obviously has chosen to make him the glorious masterpiece in the whole plan. Abimelech was a a ruler that wanted himself to be at the top of the pyramid. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be served. And he put himself at the lead character in the story. And the people followed him. So who who did Tola, coming into this mess, who did Tola save the people from? It's the first time we don't see an enemy listed. When Tola comes in and gives them 23 years of leadership as a judge. It doesn't say he conquered anybody. So who did he save them from? Themselves. He saved them from themselves. You know, God has given us this grace from a generous supply to change course no matter how dark of a turn we've made. I look at the story of Abimelech, and it is horrifying, and it is disappointing, and it's sad, and it's convicting. Because there's way too many aspects of my life where I I, I tend to want what I want because it's good for me. And if we're all honest, we do the same thing. We all do it. We all flirt with making ourselves the lead character in the story. We all flirt with being prima donnas. We all want served. We all want taken care of. We all want our way. We're all babies, and we we all whine, and we're all brats in some level. 
And in that moment, I see the worst of myself, the potential worst of myself in Abimelech, a leader who was so fueled by his own pride that it led to murder, it led to horrible acts against humanity. It led to him wiping out all, all of his brothers, except for the one that got away. What kind of ugliness has to burn in a man's heart to be so threatened that his own personal kingdom he's convinced himself he's the king of is going to crumble, that he needs to kill every sibling he has? And the hard question that I have to ask this morning of myself and of the church is what kingdom, what are we willing to do to protect the kingdom we've built for ourselves? What have we found ourselves willing to do? What relationships have we found ourselves willing to destroy? And what cost have we been willing to pay to protect the kingdom we built for ourselves? And when we put ourselves on that throne, what have we been doing to protect it? I think that is the core heart issue that we have to wrestle with in the book of Judges. God is our king. He has proven himself faithful time and time again. And at every turn, we've rebelled. Numerous times our story reflects the story of God's chosen people throughout the Judges story where we rebel and repent and rebel and repent. And as soon as the circumstances take a shift, we run back to our idols, just like the Israelites did. And when we give over to our idols long enough, it becomes so normal that we do really horrible things and justify them, just like these bad rulers and judges did. But when we keep our eyes on Christ, and we understand that He is the all-sufficient prize at the end of the story. That He's the main character from the beginning, through the middle, and at the end. When we can keep that at the forefront of our minds, it's a whole lot easier to not personalize everything into making it about us. And it's a whole lot easier to push that praise back on God, not just verbally like Gideon did, but in our hearts with our character and how we live. So we're going to close with a song called Reign in Us where we're praying that prayer, Father, reign in us. So my challenge is as we sing to pay attention to those words because when we sing those words to God, maybe they don't feel all that true to you in the moment and sometimes that prohibits us from singing, but I challenge you to sing even louder. And in that in your loud singing, no matter how good or bad it may sound, you are proclaiming to God to make those words true in your life. They might not be true right now, and they might not feel true, but the more you say them out loud to a loving God, the more they will become true because His grace is sufficient. So church, let's pray, and then let's sing. God, you are an all-sufficient God. You are worthy of our lives being devoted to you. We don't deserve that grace. But then, 
you give us these moments to hit the pause button a little bit. Take a, take a look at our hearts. Take a look at, at what maybe we've, we've been running towards that's not you. To take a look at that and say, God, reign in me. Reign in us. Don't allow me to be the main character in the story anymore. God, may this be all about you. May you be the main character in our hearts, in our families, and in this church. And may you transform the world around us because of it, because of your power in and through us, not because of us. So God, make this prayer true in our hearts and in our lives when we beg you to reign in us.